Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the circuits of time. A home for the best in 80s movies. Grab your root beers and let's get rocking. Welcome back to the Circuits of Time 80s Movie Review Podcast. I'm your host, JD, and I have the pleasure of being joined by my very good friend and co-host, Jeff Dark. Jeff Dog, let's not beat about the bush. Let's jump right in and talk about our next 80s movie, which you may recognise from the following sound. And of course, if you didn't get it from that, Jeff Dog, what is the film we will be discussing? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Yes, the weird and wonderful Beetlejuice. Uh, okay, tell us a few things that we probably ought to know about Beetlejuice. Some brief facts. Well, uh, Beetlejuice is usually the tenth brightest star in the night sky, and after Rigel, the second brightest in the... No, have we done the wrong podcast here, JD? Uh, no, but I do like where you're going, and I, I did <laughs> want to talk about this at some point. So, nice nice little segue, but uh, yeah, go on, carry on. Okay, of course, we are talking about none other than the movie, Beetlejuice, from the year of 1988. Also, same year as Big, I've just recalled off the top of my head, possibly same year as The Burbs, maybe, not too sure. Anyway, it was a budget of $15 million and made back a gross of $85 million at the box office, on top of whatever else it's made in subsequent DVD sales and rights to the Broadway musical and that sort of thing. It was directed by Tim Burton, released by The Geffen Company. It was written by Michael McDowell, who was a noted gothic horror author, and it stars Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Winona Ryder, and Michael Keaton as the eponymous Beetlejuice. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a good cast, isn't it? And, and 1988, I mean, this is probably Tim Burton's first big feature film, isn't it? It is, unless you want to count uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Was that prior to 1988? I believe so. Whatever happened to Pee-wee? Well, he, <laughs> he got into <laughs> a little bit of trouble with the law. <laughs> but nonetheless... Yeah, the, adven- the big adventure, indeed. <laughs> He did indeed, but we, you can find him again now, uh, the strange, uh, pallid-faced man-child has popped up on Netflix recently, I believe, and is it a, a new film or TV series or something like that, I've seen it. I was never a big fan, JD, but I don't know if you were, but uh, I am aware that he's relived the character. I, I wouldn't say I was a fan, I mean, he was one of those faces that popped up, a bit like Ernest, you know, Ernest goes to camp and... Something like that. Uh, I was more a fan of Ernest, of course, than Pee-wee. I hope, but, uh, sorry, I hope, JD, that we do uh, cover at least one Ernest film at some point in the future. Oh, any one of the 25 will do. Fine, you know. <laughs> um, but but let's get back to uh, Beetlejuice and, and going back to what we said. I mean, it was a big deal, wasn't it, to give this director, I mean, a, a project like this and to take a chance and, and to actually get people like Michael Keaton. And I, I don't know how big these people were at the time. I know. Michael Keaton hadn't done Batman yet, but it was a pretty good cast, all things considered. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's the kind of film that you would need a relative unknown, such as Michael Keaton, uh, doing, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he's covered in so much makeup that you can barely recognise guy. But it's a fantastic performance if you consider the fact that this is a man probably towards the start of his career. I'm thinking of other films from around that time. Um, do you recall one where he's in a, uh, a home with a group of people who get unleashed on the streets of New York. It's not multiplicity. 
um, it's not Field of Dreams. Nothing, you know, that's not, that's the baseball one. It's uh, not Serendipity? No, that's the one when there's lots of them, isn't it? Uh, is that it? No, that's Multiplicity. <laughs> Serendipity. Oh, goodness me. Right, there's a film basically from around about the late 80s where Michael Keaton is with a group of people who are in this home and they all get unleashed in the city of New York. I think it's uh, Socrates in it, possibly. He's one, uh. of the, one of the people in there. Uh, I say Socrates, obviously, being the Bill and Ted reference. Um, and it, it, they, they all go about their own separate ways and do all sorts of, uh, get up to all sorts of antics on the loose in the city. But anyway, back to our current film and not, not this other film. Oh, don't mind. We can always detail, you know that. But um, Beetlejuice was, it was unique, wasn't it? We, we'd seen nothing like it before. And, and you could almost argue, other than maybe something like Edward Scissorhands, maybe nothing subsequent. Yeah, I mean, you said there was nothing like it before. The only film that I could think of off the top of my head that came to mind uh, was Gremlins with that similar sort of uh, comedy horror type theme. And then I got to thinking of other films such as The, the Babs. Um, and a lot of films made around about that time in the 80s uh, were very much of that sort of genre where they struck a real fine line between comedy and horror. So you know, certainly of its time. And I don't think you'd get a film pretty much like it now. But uh, I can't think of any other film that's similar to it as well. I was trying to think in the bank of movies in my mind what, what would be similar to Beetlejuice. And very few are. It's quite unique. It, it is. And, and, and it also goes back to what we've said about other films in that era. Because um, obviously it was a PG, but it, it, it had some dark elements. It even had a few, you know, choice words, which obviously... It's considered, if you like, a family classic, isn't it? That's right, yeah. It is a family classic, but when I do think of that, I do think of, like you've mentioned, the F word has dropped. But then again, this comes back to something we've talked about before. Do we? There are memories of these films that we watch uh, based on versions, that the full version, the uncut version, or are our memories based on the fact that we saw them on a tea time or uh, the early evening on, on television, and they were cut already before we actually saw them in full? Yeah, you're right. I do remember that. I used to hate it when they'd slice up the film and you'd get like this really heavy edited part on one of our, uh, you know, terrestrial channels, wouldn't we? Oh, you but, completely. Uh, anyway, you completely lose the 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 flow of the scene and what the director wanted. Um, a similar thing's found with pan and scan versus widescreen and that sort of thing, but that's something completely different. Uh, but I think of Back to the Future and when. Uh, there's there's quite a few choice words when the DeLorean first arrives in the Twin Peaks Mall uh, parking lot, car park, whatever you want to call it and there's a few uh, S words in there and they cut it out and it it feels like someone's just taken a chainsaw and just chopped it up to bits because they've just, you know they've thrown a dart at the board and said let's cut this bit out and it just, it's amazing the craft of movie making just how much effort goes into what you see on screen uh, because as soon as something's cut out, it spoils the flow completely it, it does. And when you know the film as well as we do with some of these 80s films, it's like, you know, when some of these jigsaw pieces are missing, it, it's immediately obvious, isn't it? Um, but yeah. anyway, no more messing around. Let, let's actually talk more about the film. What is Beetlejuice all about? After Barbara and Adam Maitland die in a car accident, they find themselves uh, sort of in a, a, a limbo, uh, haunting their, their home, which is this beautiful home. Uh, this huge white home. Uh, They can't leave the house. Uh, When a a really obnoxious yuppie family move in to the home, 
the Maitlands try and scare them away, but they have no success. And all of these efforts to try and get rid of the, 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 the yuppie family uh, attract a Beetlejuice, who's a, a spirit whose help uh, quickly becomes dangerous for not only the new inhabitants of the Maitlands' former home, but actually the Maitlands themselves. Oh, nicely put. Uh, and with that, let's jump right into the movie review. And uh, it's a good place to start because the introduction to this movie is, is quite something, isn't it? And, and, and we can talk about, you know, films beyond the 80s. You know, you, you talk about some of the great intros. But I think Beetlejuice is right up there for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the, the music, uh, the score, uh, and that intro music is is just if you didn't know what this film was about and you just heard that music, you would be thinking you were about to watch something along the lines of Nightmare on Elm Street because it's so creepy that that first beat, those first beats, isn't it? No pun intended. Yeah, yeah you're right. I picked up on this from the get-go. Isn't it great when a film really hooks you in from the start? Uh, again, I can't help but be reminded of the uh, the opening music and introduction to first shot from The Babes. When we've got this music, which is like a church organ, almost kind of uh, pedal tones and all this creepy kind of uh, sounds, you know, Phantom of the Opera style type sound, combined with the uh, tracking shot where the camera's moving through this uh, any town USA, you know, and that really probably taps into Tim Burton and his ideal of the American uh, family and uh, the American household and that sort of stuff. I was also reminded of a film from two years before, Blue Velvet, 1986. David Lynch zooms into this beautiful town and it, but it eventually zooms in past the town, past the houses, past the white picket fences and into the ground where we see the bugs uh, scurrying away in the dirt. So it's almost like we're going beneath the veneer of, of um, Americana, as it were. No, it's really good. And I think if I remember rightly, before you even see this, well, we don't even know it's a model town at first, do we? But before we even see it, you get those early, it's not the actual song Deo, is it? It's actually a more, uh, how would you describe it? I think I think I read it was Danny Elfman who provided those initial vocals and started singing this creepy version of Deo to kind of, before the score actually starts to come in. Really effective, isn't it? Yeah, is that called, the, is it the, the Banana Boat song? I'm not entirely sure and I've made a little note of it for later on but I think I always call it the Deo song yeah. most people do because of this film don't they it's uh, Harry Belafonte um, and yeah of course Danny Elfman the the, the composer I'm sure we'll talk more again more about the music later but he he is the voice singing over the uh, the opening credits there but you're right it's a very creepy uh, thing and this it's strangely the this sort of Calypso song becomes the theme of this film. But again, yeah. that shows a, a touch from the, the creators, being creative, who the thought it. Yeah, it, it, as you said earlier, the kind of brings about the, the horror and, and collides it with something a bit more quirky, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, what kind of music course, would, they, would you call that? Is it non-didactic? Or didactic? I can't remember which is which. I think it is something like that, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, you get that with these themes, don't you? But... The model of the town itself, I mean, it's hard to know now because the film's over 30 years old, so you you probably don't remember the first time you see it. And of course, looking back now, you, you're aware of what it is, but um, it, it's so, so clever. And of course, we see that spider finally when we get to the Maitland's house and, and the spider comes over the roof. It's uh, 
it's really good. And I think it's almost a clue as to uh, what this film's about. You don't know what you're going to get. It, it not Everything's not what you're going to expect. Uh, so maybe that's maybe a little nod by Tim Burton. Uh, but but of course we're soon introduced to the Maitlands, played of course by Gina Davis and was it Alec Baldwin? I know there's quite a few Baldwin brothers. Yeah, a very young uh, Alec Baldwin. Um, you know, pre all of this now when you see him dressed as Trump or on some sort of uh, political uh, diatribe about something or other, or uh, you know, having arguments in the street with tax, uh, photographers or <laughs> whatever it, whatever it may be. But yeah, he's uh, he's quite young looking in this film, isn't he? And the, the thing that's most distinctive for me in this film about him is the costume, his outfit. Because obviously, being dead, they only wear the one costume, the one outfit, the one that they had on when they when when they died. Uh, that sort of like black and white checked shirt itself, which coincidentally, and I, I hope not to preempt a trivia fact here, but the same shirt was actually worn by uh, Tom Selleck or Ted Danson in Three Men and a Little Baby. I think it might well have actually been the exact share from the costume department. I'm not sure. Oh, no. I had no idea, but you know, things must have been tight if the swapping shirts like that. But uh, the pattern itself, of course, is very Tim Burton, and, and we see this in a lot of his films, uh, certainly the black and white, and you know, it's like almost like the, the, the chessboard, isn't it? But no, we, and, and of course, of course, we, we mentioned Gina Davis, who's also fresh faced in this. But I know what you mean, Alec Baldwin, it, it almost doesn't look like him, he's that fresh faced and young, does it? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it, when you think of these actors who, uh, you know, you've got an image in your head of what they look like or uh, the image, but when you see them when when they're young. I mean, one person in particular who books that trend completely is Tom Cruise. Cause, you know, you look at him in Rain Man in 1988, the same year, I think, or 89, and you look at him last week in uh, York or somewhere filming Michelin Possible, he looks exactly the same. He's, uh, he looks older than Rain Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, we're then introduced to a character by the name of Jane, who is a, a real estate, isn't she? And uh, she's trying to get them to sell up in this. This uh, I don't know if you'd call it a fabulous home. It's, it's certainly quirky, uh, but it's clear from the get-go that the Maitlands have no intention of selling up, do they? No, absolutely no. They, uh, they've got no intentions of doing so. Uh, and from that, we see them uh, exploring the home, uh, and we see in the attic that uh, Adam has the model of the town and of course he realises that he is, I can't remember if he's missing something or some paint or something like that uh, which of course leads to the ill-fated visit to the Maitland hardware store um, which obviously we can assume is their own business Um, and and it's typical bit in this scene, it's like everything seems idyllic and happy uh, you, you get that nice little melody as they're driving through the town. Everything's all smiles. Uh, it, it reminds me a bit of when they first drive into uh, the uh, suburban street of Edward Scissorhands. But of course, tragedy strikes as the Maitland's car plunges into the lake after swerving to avoid uh, hitting a dog. Um, and it, it's very much Tim Burton. It kind of you kind of have this real happy scene, and then all of a sudden, crash, bang. It's been flipped upside down, hasn't it? Yeah, and that comes back to the the use of colour, uh, which you said about the black and white. You know, the, the, there's 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 just a contrast between the two. Really, uh, really sets the tone, and that's one thing. There's a the tone of this film is so unique, but also sets up the man Tim Burton for the future. And I always like seeing this when you look back at a, a well known 
famous uh, director or auteur, if you want to use the, you know, the the fancy term. There's someone who's got a real uh, something to say and some and really wants to show it. No matter what the budget, no matter how young they are when they started, they find a way to put that voice and to put that image on the screen. And then eventually, <laughs> unfortunately, what tends to happen is they, you know, it becomes a monster of its own and often they can become sort of eaten by that and almost become a parody, parody of themselves. I don't know whether we could say the same about Tim Burton. Maybe we talk about that later when we talk about movie legacy. But uh, certainly from the, from the get-go, if someone's got something to say like that, then it's there and it's on the screen and you can see it and you can see it in their craft and what they do and the love and attention and the tone of this film is just so quirky, horror, comedy, and so unique. I love it. You're right. And, you know, I don't mind. We, we can always do a segue and talk about that because... I think you said about whether that applies to Tim Burton. I almost think it's been taken away, or I don't know if he's allowed it to be taken away. Tim Burton from late 80s, early 90s is very different to the Tim Burton we see late 90s, early 2000s and beyond. I almost get the impression or or the feeling that the more money Tim Burton has, the less of the quality of his work. And I, I don't know why that is, and maybe I'm being a little bit harsh on him, but... And maybe that's just the correlation that I'm seeing. It doesn't even, it's not even true. But I just get the, the feeling that when you have that much money and that much input, probably from the big studios, you lose the real essence of what he was about in those early films. Sure. So what, am I right in thinking that what you're saying is that it's very easy for, easy for these things to become formulaic at the behest of movie studios? So they're, um, you know, they're in a meeting. And this is just a hypothetical, you know, and I don't know anything, but they're in a meeting and the studio bosses say, right, okay, well, we need this. We need more of this. You know, this, this sold really well. So you've got to do more of this. You know, you've got to have uh, curly railings and um, more black, <laughs> more gray, or you don't get the money. I don't know how that, that's how the conversations go, but they just seem to, to be molded in a, in a particular way. And then it becomes, a formulaic and a cookie cookie cutter approach to making things, and then the original vision is sort of lost within that. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, if I was to say to you what was the the two most original films that Burton ever did, I would hazard the guess you might say that it would either be one of the three, or maybe Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, or The Nightmare Before Christmas. It just so happened to be some of his earliest work, and maybe. Batman's the exception because, of course, we were still. Bef- I know it was big money and things like that at the time, but I think he's he's, he's gone down the road now of not going from the original ideas. He, he seems to take old stories and, and kind of reinvent them. You had, you know, Alice in Wonderland, and I think he's took on a few other things. I still, you can still see the Burton, you know, O'Tear style, if you like. Yeah. Um, what was the d- demonic barber one that he did? Sweeney uh, Todd. Sweeney Todd, yeah. That's another one I'm so, thinking of. Darker, darker, darker. So all the, the Burton tropes are still there. I just think something's been lost over the years. It, it's a shame, really. I don't enjoy his work as much as I used to. Maybe it's just me getting older and I, you know, I don't appreciate it as I once did, but uh, I don't want to obviously uh, derail the conversation too much. But any final thoughts on whether you think... Uh, 
Burton's early work's been lost over the years. Other than to say that I agree with what you what you said there about that loss over time. And it's not inevitable as well, by the way. I might have sounded a little bit fatalist there when I mentioned about over time and these things get lost, but that's not necessarily always the case. Uh, when I mentioned before about a young director having something to say, I was immediately thinking of uh, uh, Mean Streets and Martin Scorsese and some of the inventive uses of uh, camera work and music that he's got in that film. Again, low budget. The man's obviously gone on to make incredibly huge films, subsequently still doing it now. Um, and long may he continue to do that. But I would say he's someone who's actually developed and changed over time. He hasn't he hasn't got stuck in a particular mould or a particular grain. All right, you know, we've got the gangster films and all that sort of stuff. But if you look at some of those films that he's made, I'm thinking, you know, Catch Me If You Can is the one that comes to mind because I watched it recently. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, he's always done things differently. And the older he's got, the more he's played about with what he's done. So he's someone who's become inventive. I think someone who was in danger of becoming a bit like that 20 years ago was Quentin Tarantino. But I think he's pulled it back with uh, some recent films, such as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, and the uh, the war film, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, you know, so it, it, it can be done. It's not inevitable. But I think in the case of Tim Burton, uh, that trajectory has gone exactly as you said, which is uh, downwards at the behest of the movie studios. But that's just our opinion. You know, we're just two two people who like films. That doesn't mean that we're an authority on it. It's just our opinion of, of his art. You're right, although I would probably argue it's the general consensus as well, but uh, we'll move on. Where were we? The crash. Uh, the Maitlands had obviously plunged into the lake, uh, but the couple seemed to have survived the crash, or at least that's how it seems, because they return home, but all is not once as it seemed. Uh, reality bites. Uh, they are, in fact, dead. And, and I think they find out is that the, there's no reflection in the mirror. Barbara's hands catch flame, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, they're just two of the signs. And, uh, you know, I really like this idea um, that someone who's died doesn't quite know it yet. Uh, but I, I was immediately rewatching this film. Uh, I was immediately struck by uh, 1990s Ghost Dad with Bill Cosby and dare I say his name now. So it's a recent event. But that's one of those films that I saw when I was a kid and loved. But I did watch again a few years ago and thought, oh my goodness, this is uh, absolute garbage. But a similar thing happens there. He, I believe he's in a car accident. Car goes, taxi goes over a bridge or something like that. When he gets home, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I know exactly the film. In <laughs> fact, it's quite, if, if I think back, I must have, I remember enjoying it, but it's been such a long time. It probably was such. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, any any Bill Cosby film, like that Leonard Part 6 is another one as well. Oh, just don't go near them. Trash. Do you ever remember a film called Meteor Man from the 90s? No. Was that? Oh, if we ever do a 90s podcast, I'll let you watch it. I don't know why I thought of that. It just, it, it was something similar about someone. Uh, I think this is like an asteroid. He touches like an asteroid. But but anyway, let's move on. And of course, they have the, if they weren't too sure that they were dead, they certainly found out they were dead when they found the handbook for the recently deceased. <laughs> yeah, I want I, I want a copy of this book. I really want to have a little look what's inside it. But then I'm afraid that if we actually do get a copy, then it'll only mean one thing, won't it? That if I try and give you a call, JD, then you won't answer the phone. <laughs> Which will actually be quite normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, at one point when they get home, uh, Adam tries to leave the house, doesn't he? Uh, he says he tries. He wants to retrace his steps back from the hardware store. And he opens the door and he ends up in this desert. It's really unusual, isn't it? Um, and I think it's just 
the director playing with us to say, you know, it's his version of, I don't know whether you want to call it heaven or hell or something in the middle. Uh, but yeah, he's in this desert and there's this sandworm. It, it's, you see again with the black and white stripes, the colours, it's very Tim Burton and it's very unusual scene, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it also sets the ground rules um, because obviously the first thing you'd think is why why don't they just leave? Well, we know why, because this is the limbo, uh, the sort of middle ground where they're caught. And, you know, it's a spiritual film without being religious. Uh, you know, the, those two things aren't necessarily, um, you know, there's, I know there's sort of two sides of the same coin, but it is possible to be to be one without the other, I believe. And I think he's definitely getting at something deep down here, Tim Ben. What, what do you think it is? Go on, I'm trying to have a little dig into that. That's interesting. I think it's the idea that death is not necessarily the end. We 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 are energy, and if you look at it from a scientific angle, then you know you can't you can't create energy and you can't destroy it. You can just convert it. So. I think he believes that there's something there, some sort of afterlife. And he explores this in other films too, like uh, uh, it's a corpse bride and uh, nightmare before Christmas. Is that another one? It's a skeleton, isn't it? But you see where I'm coming from, don't you? He's playing about with, with death and, and the ideas of death, but I can't think of a film that he's done that's necessarily religious per se. It's big fish yeah. about someone who dies. Or am I... It, it, it... No, you're quite right. And, and in fact, now that you start reeling off all these examples, and, and, you know, you'd have the, the nightmare before Christmas. Death is such a heavy feature in his films. Um, I, I think you're onto something, but certainly with Beetlejuice, it, it's almost, you describe it as limbo. You're kind of in the go-between, aren't you? Uh, and of course, they're stuck in this house, which is interesting because this was the house that they perceived to be, you know, the dream house. This is where they want to be. And now they're stuck there. It's kind of from one opposite to the other, isn't it? It's a perversion of what they wanted. Yeah. Now, well thought. Um, on the 11-minute mark, um, we're actually finally introduced to, or at least in part, to Beetlejuice. It's our first um, glimpse, if you like, of, of the title character. Um, if you actually look online, it, it often references the fact that Beetlejuice doesn't appear until 20, 25 minutes into the film. But he does actually appear 11 minutes in. Uh, I think we see his arm. He's reading the newspaper. and He, he sees the Maitlands and the obituary. Um, I don't know if it gives us too much of a clue as to um, who Beetlejuice is or what he's about. But it, it's a little snippet as to what's coming. Uh, and this guy's certainly uh, got an interest in the Maitlands. Yeah. Do you think that they actually, do you think they, they may have had to backtrack and put that little snippet in when they realised once they'd filmed all of Michael Keaton's scene, scenes and put them in that it only amounted to a very short amount of time. And he doesn't appear until relatively late, not late on, but about halfway through the film or 40 minutes, a film of an hour and a half. So something like that, so they must have had to put something in just to say that this guy is, you know, there. Um, because the film is obviously insults anyone's intelligence. The film's called Beetlejuice, and yet we don't actually see much of the main character. You know, and, and I know you could argue the same, couldn't you, with the Terminator? Don't see much of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator, and then the bits at the end. He's a well, he's not in. He's a robot. It's a robot. So yeah, it, they must have had to put that in just to just to show. You know, this guy, this other, this someone is here in the background. Yeah, I mean, either that or it's just uh, Tim Burton giving us bird seeds, kind of 
upping the tension that, you know, who is this mysterious guy that's on the lookout uh, without actually showing us the face, if you like. Um, but but following on from that, uh, we find out that Jane, the real estate, actually does sell the house. Um, and, and of course, it's purchased by the arrogant New Yorkers, uh, Delia and Charles. And of course, their uh, daughter, Lydia, played by uh, Winona Ryder. Uh, Delia, of course, being played by the wonderful uh, Kathleen O'Hara. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, Kevin's mum. <laughs> Kevin's mum, of course, as she will always be known. And and, and Charles, of course. I can't think of uh, Charles' uh, name in real life yet. You'll have to forgive me. I don't know if you know it. Is it, is it Schwartz? Or, I don't know. I'm sure there's a Z in there somewhere. But he yeah. uh, he was also the, uh, the principal, not the principal. Was he the, uh, like a pastoral teacher? In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he was the one who was hunting them down. Is it Koontz? Sorry, let me let me pronounce that properly. Jeffrey Koontz, K O O N T Z, something like that. It could well be. I know he actually pops up in Howard the Duck, which is still on our wish list for podcast episodes. Yeah, it's in wish we never get round to doing it. But the, but the uh the polar opposites aren't the of of Barbara and Adam and uh well in fact they're almost polar opposites of each other. He he, he Charles clearly wants to go and relax in this um country home uh, and and he, he, there's a scene, isn't it, where he he kicks his feet up and he, he starts reading the nature magazine, whereas Delia is seemingly high maintenance. She's into a uh, you know sculpture and, and art. <laughs> Uh, and, and of course, the stepdaughter, if you like, of Delia uh, is, is Lydia, who uh, again is very Tim Burton type character, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, oh my goodness, what a what a bizarre mishmash of a family this is. Uh, you've got, as you mentioned, Kevin's. I'm going to call her Kevin's mum. Kevin's mum uh, is uh, she's this uh, artist makes these horrendous. Uh, sculptures i guess the modern equivalent would be like a hipster type thing you know the yuppies of the mid to late 80s into all this expensive trash uh but then you then you've got she's married to this guy who appears to be uh, sort of in a, in a quest for peace you know cardigan <laughs> settled down kind of guy and then they gothic gothy type daughter when you find out a little bit later in the film, there's, there's a little line which gives a clue as to what has gone on with, with the father figure. It seems to me like he's had this really high-powered, high-maintenance executive job somewhere. And then he's had some sort of uh, a breakdown, unfortunately, and, and as a result, he's had to leave his job. Because doesn't he say his boss or former boss says something like, uh, something or other makes lots of money for me just like you used to before you went screwy or something like that he says uh you know the old 1980s approach to mental health problems before yeah. you went yeah <laughs> it's to the effect of you know before you had this uh this breakdown of some sort and then the daughter obviously you know my only reading into that really is that she's behaves in this way because she's uh rebelling you know some children uh, and then later adults are rebels aren't they you know they love a love a little rebellion uh, <laughs> well, you know all about that. <laughs> um, but Delia and uh, the interior designer, uh, or her, seems to be like a close uh, ally of theirs called Otho, I think his name is. Uh, but they make it clear, don't they, that 
they don't want this country house, at least in the form that it's presented in. Um, and they're, in fact, going to turn this house upside down, uh, much to the dismay of the Maitlands, who for the first time decide to use the fact that being, it, being dead to their advantage. Because uh, I think they say, let's try and spook them and, and let's try and get these um, people, these these weirdos out of our house. Um, and it doesn't go to plan, does it? Um, I know she is, does she try and cut his head off or he, she's hanging in the closet, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. This Otho character, by the way, just to come back on him, um, if you recognize him from something, he's the uh, he's the sort of henchman slash sidekick of uh, uh, the the. The good you turns out to be a baddie, Nigel Hawthorne, in uh, the De- uh, Demolition Man. You know, uh, he's got a sort of weird haircut in that film. Do you remember him? He wears kimonos. Do you know, I don't remember too much about Demolition Man. I just The only scene I can always remember from that film is the swear machine. And every time <laughs> you swear it, she's a dick. It always fascinated me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a guilty pleasure of mine, that film. But anyway, let's <laughs> say about that, the better. So this spooking, uh, they obviously try and, and scare away uh, Delia and Charles and Otho, but it, it, as I say, it doesn't go to plan. Uh, they need help, don't they? Uh, and they, in fact, they need a bio-exorcist. They need Beetlejuice. Um, but before that, uh, Adam gets an idea from the handbook of the recently deceased, which leads them to meeting their uh, caseworker called Juno. Um, and that's a great scene because, of course, just before they go and meet the caseworker, they're in the infamous uh, waiting room in, in, I think it's called the Netherworld or something like that. Uh, but it's a great scene, isn't it? Yeah, I don't want to preempt my favourite scene too much, uh, but I love it. I love everything about it. Uh, this darkness, this strangeness, the unusual makeup, and the bizarre colour palette that's going on there. Everything about those scenes. I absolutely love. Uh, in a way, they remind me a little bit of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Those, you know, those kinds of scenes with the weird colour and the strange um, sort of makeup and things like that. But the, the the scene itself taps into what we mentioned earlier about Tim Burton's approach to death, uh, and I think it says a lot about what he thinks about this. Again, there's the voice of the the, the author, the author's voice almost coming out. It's this idea that death is this uh, strange bureaucracy full of uh, all sorts of paperwork and queuing and taking tickets just like you're at, you're at a deli counter and just all that sort of boring stuff that you have to deal with in life as usual, except now you're dead and it could take thousands of years because you've got to have the right paperwork or the right ticket and all that sort of stuff. And I love that mundanity, the boringness of it all. And just to see a sheer tedium of it. And I think Tim Burton's coming at it from the angle of, well, what if you did die? Lots of, well, sorry, when? Lots of people die every day. So, yeah, there must be a backlog, uh, you know, to deal with all of these people. That's a great theme, that. It, it is. And the worst thing is, you know, you've got the time to obviously wait because apparently you're going to be stuck there. Forever. Until your <laughs> ticket comes up. Um, so Juno uh, has the chat, doesn't she, with the Maitlands, and she actually warns them not to trust Beetlejuice, um, which is funny because she still offers them the way to kind of lay him from wherever he comes from. Uh, I think she says, um, whatever you do, don't say his name three times. <laughs> um, 
but you know what maybe in future you know don't even tell them the approach but um, <laughs> yeah yeah we also find out just after that that uh, Lydia can see the Maitlands I think she's uh, taking pictures isn't she of the house and she sees them up in the in the attic room why is that why why can Lydia why why is it I think she says something doesn't she in a later scene um something about being the strange and unusual that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, there's a line that she says that preempts that, which explains why uh, it's something about the book says something about strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. I've seen that as a gif actually on online many times. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, I think the character of Lydia is the kind of character who a lot of teenage girls uh, who are quite angst-ridden might actually latch on to and would give the film definitely a new um, life now because there's nothing worse than being a teenager and not feeling like you fit in. She obviously doesn't fit in with the normal world and she's certainly nothing like her bizarre uh, parents, but she's a bizarre in her own way with the sort of like gothy look and that, you know, like that sort of style that she's got going on, that's brilliant. Uh, but the fact that she just readily sees... Uh, the Maitlands, and they don't get, they don't realise it at first, do they? They just sort of start talking to her, and it's only when they stop and realise and have a chat about it that it's actually this is unusual. No one else can see them because uh, there's also that early scene, isn't there, when they first die, and this woman and her daughter come along in dressed in black, and they're waving out the window, going, "Hey, you know, we're here, we're here," and they obviously can't see them. Um, soon after that, um, they're in the attic room again. And the model of the town starts to flash. And the Maitlands, uh, well, they ignore Juno, don't they? And they call upon Beetlejuice by saying his name three times. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I think, I don't know if you'd say that they shrunk down into this model or whether they just kind of, I don't know if it's like a dream world or I don't know how that works, but they basically end up in the model town, don't they? And, and of course, we have that great scene where they find the grave of Beetlejuice. Yeah, it's a great set, actually. Great set design that, you know, you really feel like you're in this miniature world, you know, with the sort of green rubber turf and, uh, you know, all the little models that we've already seen before as well. And we've got a real sense of place with this little town because we've seen it on a bigger scale first. And then we see it then down at their level. And then, yeah, there's, there's Beetlejuice's grave. Does it say something like Beetlejuice lives here or down here or something like that? Here, here lies Beetlejuice or something like Beetle, that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what, what an introduction because you'd obviously have the, the build-up of them trying to dig this grave and then we see the, the caskets rattling, don't we? And all of a sudden you just see this um, entity burst up and floating in the air. Such a great introduction, isn't it, to someone like uh, Beetlejuice? Yeah, he, he does burst into the scene. And his scenes then are just manic. You know, the energy that's conveyed across. Because I think a character like that could be really, really tiresome really quickly. And I guess, you know, they pulled the blinder by having someone so good as Michael Keaton, but also having him on for about 17 minutes screen time, something like that. But the energy that comes across in that is just so, so wild. I was watching uh, The Mask recently. I, I, I think I've mentioned before, I'd never actually seen The Mask. Uh, and I did watch it recently and I felt Jim Carrey could have been really aggravating in that film. But be, again, because of the manic energy and the skill that he clearly had, then it wasn't 
aggravating. It was it was interesting. It was exciting. It was zany. There was an energy coming off the screen, and I really noticed that similar with Beetlejuice whilst rewatching as well. The body movements, the head movements, the things he says, the tone of the voice. If done differently by someone else, it could have been really annoying, but it, it's not. It's brilliant. I think it's true, and the interesting comparison with the mask is that the mask actually doesn't appear in most of that film. He's mostly played by Stanley Ipkiss. Um, so you'd only get him in flashes, um, and then obviously you'd have that the, the end scene. But how would we describe Beetlejuice in those opening exchanges? He, he's funny, rude, almost sexist. I think at one point he's... Well, he, in fact, he starts to lift up uh, Barbara's skirt, doesn't he, and things like that. He does. Is he turned away with his... Has he got one arm around uh, Mr. Maitland? And at the same time, his other arm's poking back, trying to lift a skirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd never get away with that now, would you? One of your old tricks. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. Michael Keaton just, um, it, we've said it, haven't we, on previous episodes about we've grown up with these films and, and it's hard to imagine other people playing the characters as well as what we eventually got. But I actually think there's an argument that Michael Keaton could be the best example of that. And for someone who you could argue is relatively unknown, certainly to a big global audience, but it was just perfection, wasn't it? Yeah, I love it when he grabs hold of it and sort of like bends it down. You know, like that, that reminds me of something like, you know, that that photograph, the famous one in Times Square at the end of the war where the, where the sailors got the, you know, it's that kind of thing, like leans are back with it, you know, they're just not prepared for this guy. He's got his arms around them at one point. He's turning, he's just so uh, disgusting, you know, you feel uh, you, you want to be sick. I mean, combined with the brilliant makeup work as well. Uh, you, you just you just really um you know you don't want to be around there. and you know think about it a year later as well he was playing batman completely different amazing um but because they've called upon beetlejuice three times they've effectively released him from uh, his slumber if you like uh, which leads to the infamous or famous should we say uh, dinner scene or you might want to call it the deo scene by as you said earlier harry belafonte and of course, instead of scaring the dinner guests, the Maitlands end up kind of piquing their interest instead, don't they? Yeah. The, I'm, do you know what? I don't recall a, a massive amount of, about that scene. And I know it's a very famous scene, but I didn't re- really like, I know it's like controversial maybe, I didn't really like the bit where uh, Kevin's mum was taken over and sort of uh, they all started singing, you know, that song. I, I, I didn't really, I don't know. Just something about it. I just didn't, I thought, no. Didn't really enjoy that scene in particular. I know that sounds really yeah. weird, but each to their own. Each to their own, indeed. No, I, I like it just because it's just so unusual uh, and jarring, really. Um, not least of all because we're in this, it, it, the set itself is so bizarre. And you can obviously see how um, Delia has now changed this house completely beyond yeah. what we can recall. And, and you've got these pretentious people all around the table. So, and you can see Lydia's kind of um, talking to them about the ghosts. Uh, and uh, we have the song and the dancing. So, um, I wouldn't say I don't I dislike it. I, I don't overly love it. It's certainly memorable uh, for many reasons. And it, it's one that you may think that is the most recalled scene of the, of the movie for obvious reasons because it, it is iconic. The song's catchy, isn't it? Yeah, it, I'll give it that. And also, I think. Tim Burton's clearly shown that he doesn't necessarily like these yuppie types very much because the whole set design is it's it's designed to look like that kind of um 
have you seen American Psycho? Which is a sort of parody of those times too. You've got like um, sort of sleek grey granite tops on the table, crystal glasses, a sort of like Japanese themed uh, backdrop, you know, with like wooden slats in the wall, that sort of thing. So it is designed to be like what would have been a modern interior designer's dream, well, Otho in this film as represented by Otho. But yeah, all that sort of like 80s, it's now really outdated that look, but at the time that would have been, you know, wow, you're rich kind of thing and a yuppie's dream. Obviously, Tim Burton's telling us he doesn't really like these people. He wants terrible things to happen to them. Yeah, and they weren't likable people in the film, let's be honest. But but following that, Otho, of course, gets a hold of the handbook, doesn't he? Yeah, um, but just before you mentioned that, the, the puppetry, when the hands come up out of the plates and pull them all down into the plates, that's a, that's a, that's a good final shot. It is, and we can talk about the effect later because I think, obviously, the budget wasn't sky high um, and I think Burton made a conscious decision to kind of make it more of like a B-movie type effects. And and it clearly works for this kind of film, didn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. The, the, the effects were made uh, at that, just before the digital effects came along. So it's all, it's all uh, practical or optical effects or whatever you call it. But that, I mean, I, I love that. I love the, the, I've said it before, the care and the effort that goes into making these things. I, I just, I'm, I'm it, so impressed by the craft and the craftsmanship that goes on with this, this kind of stuff. I love it. And to be fair, the effects in this film aren't that bad. They, you know, they, they stand the test of time, a lot of them, because it is good puppetry. They really do. I mean, I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind, you've got the sandworms and um, the snake, the banister snake, if you, if you want to call it, the, or the stair snake. Um, unusually enough, that was actually filmed uh, before Michael Keaton was um, secured to play the role of Beetlejuice. So I think it was one, one of the, must have been one of the first um, shots of the film. Um, so I don't know if they kind of edited that post you know, production or to just to maybe try and make it look a bit more like Beetlejuice or Michael Keaton. But um, you could see it was obviously in, in its infancy. It, it certainly shows today, but certainly nothing that you would consider laughable. I mean, I've seen worse in the past five years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it doesn't exactly help that um, a lot of films just automatically go to computer effects, which become out of date. Uh, where You know, the snake effect though it didn't half remind me of uh mortal combat annihilation which is uh the sort of 1997 1998 b-movie mortal combat film with some of the worst special effects do you know which one i'm talking about the terrible terrible movie (laughs) (laughs) the original was actually quite good i think i think that was like 95 96 with uh, christopher lambert wasn't it it was, yeah, Christopher Lambert and, uh, and all the others. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, Otho ends up using the handbook to, uh, how would you describe it? Make Barbara and Adam rise from the dead. Is that ultimately what he's trying to do? Oh, yeah, of course, JD. Yeah, they sort of rise up and then they become aged and they've got this horrible sort of melting type, uh, well, sagging skin effect looking on them, yeah. It, it, it's horrible, isn't it? They start to wither and, and I think you have that scene when uh, Adam's jaw falls off. 
What, 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 what's going on there? What, what was happening? Because Otho, I think, was trying to bring them back or at least, you know, make them appear. Um, and, and, and they just, I don't know, what was the film trying to show us? That you can't bring back people from the dead? Is it something as stupid and simple as that? Maybe it's if you go messing around with that sort of stuff, then, uh, you know, bad, bad things will happen. Uh, because who, who knew it? But Otho seems to be some sort of amateur uh, occultist, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, you can imagine him sat around the Ouija board when he's not designing interiors and uh, in the late 80s Japanese influence style. <laughs> I think he actually says, doesn't he, at one point in the film when they're on that decking area, it's like if he wasn't a, an interior designer, he'd be, he'd be in the world of paranormal or something like that. <laughs> um, but Lydia, um, who, who sees all this unfolding, her last resort, unfortunately, is Beetlejuice. Um, I think she there's a scene, isn't it, where he, he's trying to get her to say the name three times and he's showing the clues like a bug and a pure orange. Uh, Beetle breakfast. I don't know who thinks breakfast is first before they say juice. <laughs> um, yeah, even course, even when he's like making a drink, <laughs> drink and sign. <laughs> but he's not the savior she hopes for. In in fact, he he does what Juno always said he would do: uh, run him off. Basically, um, I think he he tries to marry Lydia, doesn't he? At the end, <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, and there's this sort of macabre wedding scene where he's got this uh, horrible. 1970s style, uh, you know, the tuxedo, like the ruffled kind of shirt with the bow tie and that. And uh, he's got this perversion of the Met with the wedding ceremony going on. It's brilliant. It is, but you had the similar suit like that at your prom. <gasps> you swore that you'd never tell anyone. Um, no, it's a great scene. And, and what I love about that, and I think the first thing I immediately think of is the fireplace. It does this almost like slant, uh, crooked. It, it was brilliant sets. And, and Again, something very much we, we, we kind of associate with Burton and his style. Uh, not quite um, symmetrical, if you want to say something of that line. Yeah, and at the same time, isn't um, uh, Alec Baldwin, someone said Alec Guinness, Alec Baldwin's trying to, is, it, is he trying to wind up a toy car or something like that to try and get it going at the other yeah. side, at the other end of the town? Yeah, he is. I think at one point he's trying to say his name three times and Beetlejuice keeps putting. I think at first he puts like a, a zipper, doesn't he, on his mouth and then he, he locks his jaw or something. He puts a, um, like a, a, a metal plate with the rivets. Around. It's horrible, in fact, yeah, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's rubber, but it looks... I mean, wouldn't you just hate... I don't know about you, have you ever had dreams where, you know, like you lose all your teeth or you can't talk or something like that? Maybe yeah, I know it's a very <laughs> common dream, isn't it? But uh, ultimately, at the end of the film, uh, a sandworm, I'm not quite sure why this happens, but the sandworm comes through the uh, the ceiling, doesn't it? And uh, swallows Beetlejuice whole. Um, yeah, is it, is it main... got black and white rings around it? Or is I that... think it has, yeah. Yeah, and it sort of plunges them down through the floor, doesn't it? Yeah, it, well, it, it kills them because, of course, we end up seeing, I think, the final scene is in the, the Neither World Waiting Room. But the Maitlands themselves, I'm not quite sure whether the film implies that they're alive to a bit more following that, because I think we see them, don't we, back in the old house or the house that they always wanted. All the stuff that Delia wanted to do or had done had been seemingly reversed. And they're in the house, aren't they? And they're decorating again. Um, you've got Lydia who, who comes back from school. She's doing it. She's got a grade. And she's, she had the, that <laughs> she's had the school for girls. 
And, uh, you know, they're just talking, aren't they? Like they're a family. So, okay, did, did their mum and dad and Otho run away and leave it? <laughs> and this is, okay, well, we'll just abandon our 15, 16-year-old daughter. <laughs> That's fine. She can live in this house on her own. Cause, and then she's with her, you know, step-parents, I guess, who were dead, <laughs> once dead. They're wearing the same clothes as what they wore throughout the film. So I think they might still be dead. Because I think they can still do things that you'd think only the dead could do. I think Adam nods, doesn't he? And he, he makes things move or cupboards. I don't know. Yes, he says something um, like, uh, just do it. And he says, oh, you know, one more time or something like that. So he goes, oh, okay. And he makes something dance. So we can assume that the dead, but they're happy. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's the override message. But that does, of course, wrap up the uh, review of Beetlejuice. Unless, of course, you had anything else to add with regards to the story. Yeah, it's just that final scene, isn't it? Which, of course, sets it up for Beetlejuice 2, where Beetlejuice is in the room with the dead people and there's some sort of uh, tribal warrior sat next to him. or something. Yeah, yeah. Now, he's got a ticket with uh, ticket number four on (laughs) and number three's come (laughs) out and he's got 60-something million and he sort of, on the sly, uh, swaps them over, doesn't he? Which says, you know, he will be back and he will return. Yeah. The question is, who are these 10 million people and where are they? Because there's only like four people in the waiting room. <laughs> it's a good point, actually. Um, that actually reminds me of, because I used to have a lot of Beetlejuice toys. And uh, I actually had one of Beetlejuice in that tuxedo. And you could swap his head. So you could have a normal size Beetlejuice head. You could swap it with a little one. It was great. So I, know, I think that it was a great range of toys for Beetlejuice, really. Yeah, I think in the late 80s, there was a massive, massive uh, amount of toys and a lot of toys were based on things that were completely inappropriate for children. So I'm thinking of the RoboCop line of toys, Terminator, Beetlejuice to an extent, Batman, because Batman was a, well, it was the first film to receive a 12 rating. It would have been a 15 otherwise. The You know, a lot of these things were designed. And one of the things that you notice in these toy lines from the 80s is this uh, your cartoonish look because a lot of these films were turned into cartoons, but also the introduction of characters uh, that you'd never even heard of, but, you know, kids will just go along with it anyway. And usually they have some sort of weapon and some sort of vehicle, because I distinctly remember a friend of ours, uh, I think it might have actually been Axel, special guest host from the past. I might be wrong here, but he may have had a Beetlejuice car or vehicle of some sort. I might have been thinking of someone else. It was definitely someone in our school. I remember that from those times. At that point, I hadn't seen the film and I didn't have any toys like that. I did have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though. I was very happy with oh, that. Well, yeah, we, are. we all did, didn't we? But um, we'll have to ask Axel when he's next on the show. Um, but let's move on. Did you know? Okay, the first thing I um, found out, j Doug, in my research of this film is that the character of Beetlejuice uh, wasn't always supposed to be uh, comedic. Uh, in fact, he was going to be a winged demon in early uh, drafts and and when he appeared in human form he would actually appear as a small middle eastern man bit of an unusual choice isn't it uh, fortunately that they switched writers and the rest is history and that was interesting when i read that that they switched writers i always assumed it was just uh, tim burton's baby i don't know if you know anything on the contrary 
Yeah, I mentioned the writer earlier on. His name, well, one of the writers, should I say, there were two. But Michael McDowell, in particular, he was a, a writer of uh, Southern Gothic horror. So Gothic horror films, excuse me, Gothic horror stories and films and TV shows that were often set in the Deep South. Uh, and I think that's a, a, a theme that's explored in a lot of films. Like, uh, I won't say Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's not Deep South, but you know what I mean? Like uh, Devil's Rejects and all that sort of stuff where, you, you know, the, the greatest thing to be scared of is is the people who are living out in the wilderness. It's a bit unfair on people who live out in the woods. But, you know, the point is, like, there's real horror in the everyday or the the the, the, the boring stuff kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's where probably a lot of that's come from. Um, it did surprise me. You mentioned a wing, winged character because it just, I don't know. I mean, I'm saying that because we know it's the Beetlejuice we know and love, isn't it? The comedy type thing. But would it have worked as well with something so serious and subject matter so serious? Would the film have become, well, it must have, it would have been a horror film, wouldn't it? Not, not comedy, surely. It, it was, in fact, that the more you look into that, it gets darker because I think it's like it was supposed to in, in very very early drafts um, almost be a murderer and a rapist and all these horrible things um, and, and of course fortunately we uh, we had the family fun that uh, Tim Burton saved up but um, yeah really unusual um, did you know J-Dog that the original title proposed by Tim Burton himself uh, or at least put forward to the um, studio at the time was scared sheetless, which I think is really good. You know, usually you hear these um, titles, potential titles, don't you? I think one of the ones we we talked about in our first episode, I think Back to the Future at one point was going to be called um, Spaceman from Pluto. Yeah, but that would have made sense because of the context of the film. Uh, in the 1950s, there was a lot of sort of pulpy, cheesy, uh, space age type uh, thing. Well, that's explored in the film, isn't it? With the suit and the... Uh, so it would have made sense, but then it doesn't give any nod to the time travel aspect of the film. It's true. And and what I would say about that is, it, although it is relevant, I don't think it sounds good. Whereas Scared Sheetless, actually, you could see in a film like this, it could work as a title, couldn't it? <laughs> it could actually, yeah. <laughs> Scared um, here's one for you. Glenn Shaddix, I hope it could be Shaddix, I don't know how you pronounce that, who played Otho was so fond of the song Deo that it was actually played at his funeral back in 2010. I was actually unaware that he died. I was, uh, you know, obviously unfortunately read that when I was looking into the film. Yeah, and because of, I know him from Demolition Man, I, I, I do remember when he passed away, actually. Um, yeah, quite young, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, imagine that, having a, a song that's associated with the film. It shows that he obviously cared and had a, a love for the source material. I wonder if anyone got up and danced around the pews. <laughs> Not unless they were <laughs> possessed by a few, 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 few spirits like Jack Daniels, Johnny Walker. <laughs> Here's my favourite bit of trivia. It's my last one I picked up, but it was my favourite one. Did you know that Beetlejuice was the first ever DVD to be shipped from Netflix? And of course, when I say Netflix, I'm talking in the days before video streaming and digital downloads. I think they used to post DVD discs to your house, didn't they? Oh, it just seems so cumbersome, doesn't it? Uh, I think there was something similar called Love Film at the time. Did they um, come together? I'm uh, not quite sure. But, but Beetlejuice was the first DVD that was ever shipped from Netflix. Wow. 
That's a, that's a really interesting fact, that actually. Yeah. Good good trivia question. There you go. Okay, so we talked about the music, and uh, we mentioned it was Danny Elfman who, of course, worked a close collaborator with the uh, with Tim Burton. He's almost like uh, John Williams to Steven Spielberg, isn't he? So uh, he was also in the band Oingo Boingo many years before. Well, some years before, should I say? You know, do you remember that they did a the, the theme for one of the films that we've already reviewed? Oh, I feel like we've. I do remember speaking about Dan, Danny Elfman, but go on. What was it, it? Oingo Boingo did the theme song to Weird Science. Ah, yeah. The style of Danny Elfman to me, I could sum up in two particular themes. Uh, it's the staring strings. So I'm thinking of The Simpsons, which he did the theme to, and Batman. You know, uh, the sort of rising strings. That, that That's about as much as I can describe it, really. But, you know, you know it when you hear it. So I love that because I'm a big fan of Hans Zimmer. So when, when you know who it is by what they by what they sound like, I just love that real connection with the music. Oh, that's really interesting. Really talented guy, Danny Elfman. Yeah, definitely. Helen Langenkamp was considered for the role of Lydia. Uh, after Tim Burton saw her in A Nightmare on Elm Street. She turned the part down. Do you know why she did it, though? Uh, was it uh, conflicts with um, schedules, filming sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> Is it Dream Warriors? I think she pops up in. Um, no, it wasn't, actually. She she just didn't want to play a goth girl. So wow. there we go. Interesting. Not, it was, not funny fine. enough, I think I'd read... Um, in the last couple of days, that quite a few of them had reservations about the script. They just didn't see them, couldn't understand the characters. I think uh, Kathleen O'Hara was the same. I think she took quite some convincing. But um, yeah, they obviously ended up getting sold by Tim Burton in the end. But no, that's a good one. Yeah, I think it. it I mean, it's easy to say if you're a, if you're not a job and actor, but you know, if there's something that seems a bit strange and unusual to use a phrase, um, go for it. You know, it's always going to be there. You can always be proud of it for, for, for good or, or bad. But that's easy for me to say. I'm not an actor. Anyway, uh, we talked about the use of the F word, uh, choice language for a PG film. Uh, it was actually along with a couple of other films as well, which contained the F word around about the same time. Spaceballs, 1987. Big, 1988. And Caddyshack 2, also 1988. I was. I haven't seen seen Caddyshack too. I know it's got a theme, theme song by Kenny Loggins. The first one did anyway, uh, and I did see Spaceballs once many years ago. But Big is obviously the one which we've reviewed, and I've seen goodness knows how many times. I'm struggling to think of the scene with the f use f words actually used. Uh, in Big, in Big, yeah, yeah. Apparently, I, I, why am I thinking that it's his friend? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Maybe when he's being chased by him or grabbed by it or something. I don't know. Maybe not when it's shown on the television at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. That's probably why we haven't seen it. And then, of course, uh, in Plain Trains, we had the 30 utterances of the F word. Just the 30. We did, yeah, yeah. Because 29 was too little and 31 would have been too many. Exactly. Okay, uh, one of our first tweets came in from the forces strong with this one at the real SP MacD, who said it funny and a bit scary when I was a kid. The Maitland's death and their rapid ageing at the end still makes me shudder. 
but the rest is hilarious. The cartoon's also wonderful. And, and I agree. I mean, in fact, I still have, I don't know if you know this, the Beetlejuice lunchbox from the animated series. Wow. Still in my mum's house. Uh, or I think, if it not the lunchbox, do you remember that you used to have to get those old sandwich boxes that you'd put in your lunchbox? Yes. I think I still have the animated Beetlejuice box for that, so I'll have to dig it out. Do you know what? But, when you uh, think like that, where where would your mother have got that from? Like, where would they have sold? Do you know what I mean? Like, would that have been something that would be on the supermarket shelves or something like that? Uh, God knows. And how would you, how would your mum know how to buy like to buy that for you? It's strange, isn't it? Like, then you start thinking about these things and where they come from. It is. I'm just going off that tweet. It, it, it's funny because he says that the film was both amusing and scary, and it's true, isn't it? I mean, the first time I saw Beetlejuice, I was really young. Um, and but I still remember being scared. Um, I'm probably off Beetlejuice more than anyone. Um, even in, when Barbara and uh, uh, what's his name, the husband, have lost it. Adam. Adam. Um, when they try and make themselves look scary by pulling the facial features, and that really freaked me out as a kid. But of course, you had that comedy element, so it, it, they really played off well against each other, didn't they? Yeah. Does she have two eyes in their mouth? When she does that, when her, her face opens like a shot, like a pterodactyl mouth type thing. That's right. And I think Adam has his, his eyes on his fingers, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, another tweet came in from Flying High Rapster Man at Jack Door One, who said, Michael Keaton's best ever role. So many good costume ideas, too. Um, that's a good point. We, we've said about Michael Keaton being the perfect Beetlejuice. Um, but actually, someone saying that it's his best ever role. I actually don't think that's too far-fetched fetched a thing to say. Um, in fact, I think it's possibly true. Would you agree? Well, he's evidently someone who's not seen 1998's Jack Frost. Oh, yeah, yeah. How could we be so blind? <laughs> <laughs> he did, of course. Did he win an Oscar in the end for Bird? Was it Bird? A Bird man? I think he did, yeah. The, my, my wife, uh, she despised that film that I dragged it along to see. And I loved it. Uh, ironically enough, he, he then became the, uh, sorry, I don't even know his name, was a Vulture or Birdman in the Spider-Man film too. There you go. Nice little link in there. Um, and of course, just a quick word on the, the, the costumes and the effects going off that last tweet. Yeah, the costume design and effect design is so well done. You know, I'm thinking of the, the 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 iconic black and white suit, the you know the Beetlejuice suit. Also, he might turn round in one scene and he's wearing something else. So there's one where he, he's wearing the same thing as Adam when he turns around. Uh, also, the the scene which I love talk about when we get onto favourite scenes, the scenes of the the limbo and the kind of things that people are wearing in there and the makeup and the sort of ghoulish. Um, face paint that people have got on like the greenish kind of colour like the kind of thing that you might have got when you went trick or treating when you were a kid yeah it was brilliant um, and the last tweet I'll read out is Jeremy B at JB5412 who just said it's a family favourite and still as good as it was when I was a kid um, and I'm not sure whether I, whether I agree I think I, I watched it recently and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it thought it was really good fun but I don't know if it lost something. Uh, maybe I was tired when I was watching it. What, what did you think upon rewatch? Because it wasn't one of these films that I'd seen a million times when I was a kid. It hadn't made as much of an imprint on my mind that it might have done with others. 
So I can't really say that from a, a, a fair point of view. I will say that when I watched it again, I was very impressed, as I've already said, by the look of it and the effects and how it holds up and the uniqueness of the story and everything like that. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, would I show it to people who are young? Probably not, because it's quite scary. And again, you know, some of the themes that are going on there, um, I probably wouldn't show it to the, someone of the same age as, as when we first watched it. But I think I think a lot could be said about most of the films that we watched when we shouldn't really have seen them. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre for your sick birthday. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days, they were good. <laughs> yeah. um, let's move on and test your trivia of Beetlejuice. Q&A. Okay, J-Dog, you ready for three questions? Well, I am, but to be honest, I'm not exactly uh, uh, holding up much hope given my shocking performance in the Ghostbusters films. None for six, if I remember. Mm, thanks for reminding me. That's all right. Moving on to question one. How many times is the name Beetlejuice mentioned in the film? And, and when I say Beetlejuice, I mean successfully. I don't mean when it's um, mispronounced on several occasions. But how many times is it successfully uttered during the film? <sighs> 12. Not a bad guess. It was 15. 15. Okay, question two. The receptionist in the Neither World is a Miss World contestant, but from which nation is she from? It says it on a sash. It does. It? It's on the sash. Are you pausing for dramatic effect? <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me a continent, please? Uh, South America. I th- okay. All right. I'm. I don't. I'm not saying this because you've said it, but I, I was thinking that. Uh, is it Miss Argentina? Correct. Oh, I should have just said that. <laughs> well played. Okay, and finally, question three. What is the name of the strip club Juno creates to distract Beetlejuice? I'm thinking it's a, a sort of mouth, and you've got girls, girls, written on either side of that mouth. Uh, I'll give it a clue. Well, it's not a clue, but... It, the title doesn't, in fact, refer to girls or anything like that. Right. De- Devil's rejects. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it does actually begin with a D, so I don't know if you want to have another stab. Demon. No. No, it, it is, in fact, Dante's Inferno. Oh, okay. Dante's Inferno. Well, I said, so de- one, I said one, Devil, one so... <laughs> One out of three this time round. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, well, that's, that's an improvement to 33%, so I'll take that. Okay, JD, so this film won an Oscar, believe it or not. What did it win an Oscar for at the 1989 Academy Awards? Oh, it's got to be uh, the, the, the best costume design or best makeup. Oh, I, I'll have to go with your first answer, JD. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's best makeup, I'll give you that. Okay, when they go to the netherworld, they come across a room which has got that black and white checkered pattern and a sort of weird mirror and, you know, all the angles don't quite make sense. But what does the janitor say the room is that Adam's looking into? Oh, is it the, the, something, the room of lost souls? 
I'll give you that again, JD. You got that once, the Lost Souls Room. Uh, it's, ah, there you go. Okay. You'll give me if that was the right answer. <laughs> uh, okay, you might have got the words around the other way or the way. <laughs> okay, and finally, JD, uh, during one of his diatribes, the, uh, Beetlejuice mentions that he's seen The Exorcist a given number of times. How many times does he say he's seen it? And every time it just gets funnier. Oh, um, can I ask for a clue in this one? Is it something in the hundreds? It is. It's a three-digit number, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm going to just say it because it might have some sort of reference to evil, but is it 666? Oh, you, you know what? It's it's not. It's a good guess, though. It is. It's a, you know, a good guess, but you're not right there. It's <laughs> 167 times. Oh, well, you made it sound like I was close there, Jesus. Well, you did say 666, didn't you? The yeah, only so for 450 <laughs> ounces. Oh, well. Oh, let's move, let's, let's move on. Two out of three ain't bad. Don't be sad. <laughs> okay, I won't bore you too, too much with my favourite scene, J-Dog, but it is, I know we look, we, I know you exactly what you're going to talk about because I know you you referenced it earlier, but I actually liked the first encounter with Beetlejuice, um, and, and we touched upon it earlier um, when they, you know, sh- shrink down into the model, and the set itself is, is so clever, and, and you know the way that the, the coffin rattles and he emerges in, in, into the air, it, it's really good. And I just thought it was, it was just there's something about it I really like, and and of course he's so zany and funny. It's um, it's just perfect from Michael Keaton. It's got everything. It's scary. Uh, it's funny, and he just comes alive. So I won't bore you any further. But what's your favourite scene from this movie? Uh, it is the waiting room, just the boring mundanity of it all. The gentle lift style music, elevator music in the background, the waiting, the sat there. I think Alec Baldwin sat there, sort of with his legs crossed over, as you would if you sat in a waiting room bored. But it's not just that. I mean, and the this theme of what death limbo must be really like. But I love the people sat around and you see them and the reasons why they've been killed or died. So you've got, there's a lady who's sort of got like a, a I don't know, it's really macabre, isn't it? But, you know, she's got like a, a wrist slit. There's a man going around on a conveyor belt hanging from a noose. I mean, it's so dark and it's, but it's so macabre. That's the word, isn't it, for it? Where it's just, there's a, it's a dark humour to it. But the one uh, puppets in particular, which I absolutely adore, is the shrunken head. Uh, I think he's called Harry the Hunter because there's a toy called Harry the Hunter which had a proper head, and I think you could take his head off and underneath it had the shrunken head. But it's when he, <laughs> it's when it's when Alec Baldwin turns and looks at him, and and he turns and looks. <laughs> Not aware the said he's just got these eyes that are kind of like ping pongs, and just the way his head sort of turns and then looks <laughs> back again. <laughs> I absolutely love that puppet. It's oh, brilliant. And it's got that like waiting room music. It's almost like jazzy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite puppet is the one who's obviously smoked himself to death and he's just sitting there like charred. <laughs> Uh, doesn't he say something like, you want one? I've been trying to cut back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, good choice. Movie Legacy. 
Well, J-Dog, it's been 33 years since uh, Beetlejuice hit theatres and we still don't have a sequel. It did have a relatively successful animated series that ran for four seasons and and nearly 100 episodes, in fact. Wow. Um, It was also likely to have been the the springboard uh, for Tim Burton, who who was, as we know, given the reins to uh, direct uh, Batman only a year later. Um, but every couple of years, you know, talk of the sequel, you know, keeps popping up and the rumoured script. I think it was actually the, the rumoured script idea was Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. And even Michael Keaton has himself expressed interest in, in reprising his role. But but has it been too long? Is there appetite for the sequel or is Beetlejuice just the product of the 80s? And, and ultimately, is that where the should remain? Yeah, you know, I said it before. There's no, where's the originality? Come on. I mean, do we have to see this rehashing again, time and again, trying to renew old ground? And it it seldom works. I mean, look at the disgrace that's happened to Terminator. Let's not go there. Just leave it where it is. Why does everything have to be rehashed? Just leave it. Let it be. It was a fantastic film. This Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian concept. I mean, it's like, Break into Electric Boogaloo, which is a terrible breakdancing film. But again, it's taking the concept of the first film and then just trying to do it somewhere else. And, you know, it it doesn't warrant any more thought. Just leave it where it is. I was very surprised that the Beetlejuice animated series lasted for four series, though, 100 episodes nearly. Something like this you'd expect to just sort of come along, cash in on the success of the, the program. Or film just like the Back to the Future cartoon did, uh, and then sort of vanish into the ether. But for it to last that long, you know that 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 that's great. Yeah, um, reminded me also the real Ghostbusters cartoon too. But talking about the legacy as well, the, the Beetlejuice outfit is so iconic. You know that's a a, a a Halloween staple now, isn't it? Like Freddy Krueger. And also in uh, Orlando, in I think it's in Universal or somewhere like that, each year they have a sort of uh, Halloween special that they set up. And it's, uh, you know, it's music and characters and things like that. And I think Beetlejuice has been a part of that for a long time, uh, as of Bill and Ted as well, if I remember rightly. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an on- ongoing thing. In fact, I remember going to Universal Studios about... It must have been over 15 years ago now. And Beetlejuice was, well, you know, someone dressed up as Beetlejuice going around, taking photographs and pictures and acting all zany and being exactly like the character. Uh, I think I've got my picture with him somewhere, actually. Uh, yeah, I think I've read that there was like a, something in Universal Studios. It was like Beetlejuice's graveyard or there was something there for him. I don't know if it still exists. Yeah. In fact, I think the last time I checked it, it had been taken over now by like a, a Fast and Furious thing, which is obviously oh, yeah. the, the, a popular brand now. The in thing, um, yeah, yeah. But there's the, yeah. these, these uh, themes as well that run through uh, Tim Burton's films and uh, Joe Dante films as well, also in Gremlins. is this idea of a perfect suburbia that's become unsettled by something. And that that was such a good running theme in the 80s. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd like to see that come back. Um, but I do think things have moved on now where... You, you wouldn't necessarily get that kind of thing now. It would be really, really dark or really, really no. light. It wouldn't be that that mix that was just so potent and so unique and it had a gold mine, wasn't it, to tap into in the 80s? And that that's all gone now, I think. 
no, I totally agree. Um, but of course, you have one um, final objective, and that is to give your mark out of 10 for Beetlejuice. So, J-Dog, without further ado, what is your mark for Beetlejuice? Right, I'm going to give this one a 9, JD. Uh, I can't really verbalise why I can't give it a 10 out of 10, okay? I'm just going to have to say it's a nine, It's a solid 9 for me. How do you feel about that? I was thinking a 9 before you said it. Um, and, and I know I mentioned earlier, it, it's. Uh, I think before I watched the film in, in the last week, I was thinking, I always thought of Beetlejuice as a 10 out of 10 film. And I still kind of think it is in its own uh, way. Uh, it's still very much an enjoyable film. I, maybe watching it, you know, years and years later, it maybe lost a bit of its magic. Maybe the, the effects, uh, maybe I'm looking at them differently or I'm not sure. But I think nine is, I mean, as we say with all our reviews, anything over an eight is a pretty solid score. But I, I'm with you on this one. I think uh, nine out of 10 is a uh, pretty decent score for Beetlejuice. Yeah, let's leave it at that. But J-Dog, anything further to add? Uh, you want to say your goodbyes? No, hang on, let me, let me rephrase that. That sounds like you're dying. <laughs> Tell my family I love them. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, J-Dog, any final words? I Just to, to say thank you to all of our listeners, and I know it's been a little while since our last podcast, but we are back with you, and it will not be so long before we have our next episode. I hope you're right. Um, but that just about wraps up another episode of the Circuits of Time 80s Movie Review Podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, check us out on Twitter. And uh, we also have an Instagram, which uh, JDog will leave in the show notes. So thanks again, and we'll see you all next time. See you next time, nerds.